0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is, ever shall be. Thank you. I was listening to the gospel reading this morning. I thought about how direct the Savior was. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I thought... That would be too easy a message to say. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Deny yourselves. Amen. It reminds me of a video I saw. Some pastors were passing around this video and it said the the sermon that every pastor wants to preach. Not the one that I want to preach, but it was pretty funny. And the guy got up and he said, "Everyone, don't be bad." <laughs> Stop making bad decisions, Dave. Don't be a hypocrite, Sally. Stop gossiping. Get over it, you guys. Stop faking it. Ah! By the time he was done, his voice was cracking. He was, and then you know he threw his hands down and walked away. That's not the one that I want to preach. But we do need to learn how to deny ourselves, and the question. Is how. First of all, I want to ask us a couple of questions. You may have noticed since the last time you were here, especially if you were just here last Sunday and not on Friday when we had our feast services, the colors have changed. What color did we have before? Anyone? Kids? <laughs> blue. We had blue, yeah. And what color do we have now? Red, yeah. And why has the color changed? Do you know why? Yeah, it's a new feast day. Which one do you know? Anyone? The cross. Yeah, the feast of the elevation or exaltation of the cross. That's what we celebrated. So we've changed our color to red. It's the color of the feast day. And when we have a feast day, we have a day that comes before leading up. To that feast, what do we call that day leading up to the feast? After. No, the forefeast, or there's a couple other words we use: the eve of the feast, or if you want to impress your friends or make them roll their eyes, maybe it's the paramon of the feast. Is the Greek word the paramon the eve of the feast? And then what comes after the feast? After. The after feast, yeah. And so we are in the after feast of the. Exaltation of the cross. We continue one of the things I love about our faith, and I've said this many, many times, is that we don't just celebrate a feast and then forget about it, but we continue to remember we continue to remember and celebrate during a season called the afterfeast, And then we have the final day, is called the leave-taking, or apodosis, where we transition into the next season either getting ready for the next feast or transitioning into the next season. So anyway, when reflecting on today's readings and the season that we're in, the afterfeast of the exaltation of the precious and life-giving cross, I wanted to, for some reason, talk about something specific came to mind. The crucifixion of the mind. And that sounds kind of theoretical. And it is if it's disconnected from real life, this idea of the crucifixion of the mind. And so two people came to mind. So I I wanted to call this homily, the crucifixion of the mind, the example of two persons. The first one, a little boy, born in 1896. He was spiritually inclined, prayerful, artsy, creative, Eventually, he departed from the faith of his childhood. He was raised Orthodox. In order to explore the Indian mystery religions, he felt limited by the idea of a personal God, and he explored religions based on an impersonal absolute. He was concerned that the Christian emphasis on personal love was necessarily finite. He became an artist. Eventually living in Paris, struggling to express purity through art and find meaning through assent to this non-existent, I would say, impersonal absolute. He was unsuccessful. And little by little it dawned on him that pure intellection, pure thought as an activity of the brain only, could not advance one far in the search for reality. An impersonal absolute, the search for an ethereal kind of sense of reality leaves a person left in loneliness. And then suddenly he remembered Christ's injunction to love God with all thy heart and with all thy mind. And this unexpected insight was extraordinary. As earlier, earlier time when he had the Eastern, Eastern vision of the impersonal being that had beguiled him into dismissing the gospel. Only that earlier moment had struck as kind of a dark clash of thunder, but now the revelation from God illuminated like lightning, like lightning in election without love was not enough. And actual knowledge could only come through community of being, which meant love, community of being. And so Christ conquered him. His teaching appealed to his mind with different undertones, acquired other dimensions. Prayer to the personal God restored his heart, removed him from his loneliness, directed first. And foremost now to Christ. This one went on to study theology, but found the study of it to be unfulfilling. So he left Paris for Mount Athos and he became a monk. Eventually the student of one whom we might call a practical theologian, St. Silouan of Mount Athos. And this young man became the disciple of St. Silouan, later living for years in isolation and prayer before leaving Mount Athos to write the biography of his elder and then spending his latter days founding a monastery in Essex, England. Do you know who he is? Elder Sophroni. You're tempted to call him Saint Sophroni, aren't you? Me, too. Me, too. We actually have some parishioners who are there at his monastery right now and someone who just returned as well from visiting his monastery. The next one, born in 1934, a little younger than the first one, to a Protestant family in Southern California. Are you trying to guess already who, you, who I'm going to talk about? Naturally drawn to beauty, but also practical and industrious. Passionate about the search for truth, having a love for beauty and a penetrating intellect. He studied in the university and he was a Renaissance man learning multiple languages. He was conversant in French and German. He also learned Chinese and Japanese. Later, he learned Russian and Church Slavonic. He loved music, especially Bach, and enjoyed fixing things. But eventually became disillusioned with the emptiness of modern life, its flat materialism. And with the only Christianity he knew, he had only been exposed to Protestantism and Catholicism and he felt that they had lost their spirituality. He also saw that science and technology wrongly used were slowly destroying the natural, beautiful fabric of life. Looking for truth in the East, he studied Chinese culture and religion, Taoism, Buddhism, Zen, and then the hedonistic teaching of a man named Alan Watts, who was a former Episcopalian priest, who had rejected his faith in favor of a form of Zen Buddhism. After a while, he also became disillusioned with Eastern religions, finding them shallow. So he came close to atheism, sensuality, and actual rebellion against God. He also came close to a total skepticism, this terrible state of the human mind doubting all, drawing nearer and nearer to total madness and self-destruction. But a miracle occurred. He came to the night service at the Russian Orthodox Cathedral in San Francisco. It was Pascha, Russian Easter, so notoriously exuberant and full of joy. Here he experienced something of the original spirit of Christianity from the time of the apostles. He was overwhelmed by the beauty of the service, by all he saw and heard. And he said, now I'm at home. He realized that he had found what he had been seeking all along. He experienced something neither intellectual nor just aesthetic, just beautiful, but existential. Something that reaches to the core of the being. And inside of him there was a burning, not a temporary exaltation, but a deep and spiritual passion, a permanent determination to preserve no matter what that was to last his whole life. And from then on, slowly, he became more and more engulfed in Orthodox Christianity. He gradually gradually changed his mode of life from worldly to ascetic, became an ascetic, a spiritual struggler. He would go on to start an Orthodox bookstore and publishing house, eventually establishing a monastery in the remote mountains of Northern California with the blessing and oversight of Saint John of Shanghai in San Francisco, right over here. His spiritual benefactor was Saint John. He became an avid translator of texts that were previously unavailable in English and an author of several insightful and critical books addressing popular issues of the day. He mentored many people into the Orthodox faith by making accessible what was once very exotic, And foreign to the Christian West. But for which so many people were craving. Craving for and struggling to find the true faith. He became an evangelist with his distinctive long matted dreadlocked beard and black robe. He died at a young age in 1982 due to a rare medical condition. But his work lives on in his printed books And in the dynamic monastic brotherhood that still prays and works and worships off the grid in the mountains of Northern California. One of my favorite places to visit, St. Herman of Alaska Monastery. Do you know who he is? Father Seraphim Rose, Rose, that's right. I gave you plenty of hints. I gave you more than 20 (laughs) hints there. This is Father Seraphim Rose, and he's famously quoted as having said that he had to crucify his mind in order to become a Christian. And Elder Sophroni also came to the realization that if he really wanted to know God and be with Him entirely, he must dedicate himself just to that, and still more entirely than he had to all of his other pursuits in the old days. It's said of him that prayer became eventually both garment and breath to him. Unceasing even when he slept. Father Seraphim Rose was so relentlessly seeking the truth that when he found per- the truth in the person of Jesus Christ, he abandoned everything in order to enter into this mystery that caught him by surprise. You know, it reminds me his total abandonment of self and preference to Christ reminds me of what it meant for many people in ages past to become Christian. For many, to convert to Christianity meant to sign the line to become a martyr. And these men became living martyrs, living witnesses for the faith, dying to themselves. Likewise, Elder Sophroni, who came to acknowledge that there's a divine spark within each person. But if one's to become ignited with the love of God, it means to become all flame, not just a little bit. But become, become all flame, totally consumed. Not just to have a little flame contained, light and warmth preserved under the protection of a bushel. So both gave themselves over to the faith. And while laboring tirelessly to share what they had unworthily received from Christ, they understood the reality of which St. Paul spoke, which came up in the day's epistle reading. St. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They embodied the radical call of Christ to himself, conveyed in today's gospel reading. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In his journal, Father Seraphim reflected on this very thing. He wrote, let us not who would be Christians expect anything else from it than to be crucified. For to be a Christian is to be crucified. In this time and in any time since Christ came for the first time. His life is the example and warning to us all. We must be crucified personally, mystically. Through crucifixion is the only path to resurrection. If we would rise with Christ, we must first be humbled with Him, even to the ultimate humiliation, being devoured and spit forth by the uncomprehending world. And we must be crucified outwardly, in the eyes of the world, For Christ's kingdom is not of this world, and the world cannot bear it. Even in a single representation of it, even for a single moment, the world can only accept cheap, deceptive alternatives to Christ, now or at any time. He continues No wonder then it's so hard to be a Christian. It's not hard, it's impossible. No one can knowingly accept a way of life which, the more truly it is lived, leads more surely to one's own destruction. And that's why we constantly rebel, try to make life easier, try to be half Christian, try to make the best of both worlds. We must ultimately choose the, the, our felicity lies in one world or the other, not in both. God give us the strength to pursue the path of crucifixion. There is no other way to be Christian. End of quote. Those are challenging but totally inspiring words. These two men dedicated themselves to lives of prayer and spiritual struggle. But what about us? Not all of us are called to live such a life. Though I do think that some of us, Including our, our little, our young ones, should consider that they might be called to monasticism someday. Monastic calling isn't just for someone else, it might be for you. But for those of us who live in the world, who have families, who work jobs, what do we do? What are we to do? How do we take the inspiration of such radicals for the faith and apply it to our lives? Deny yourself. Amen. (laughs) Good, okay, you're still awake. (laughs) Me too. One important thing to recall is that the Christian life is the call of Christ unto himself. And the call of Christ unto himself is a singular call. One call for all people. It's not as if some are more called to him than others. Not at all. All are called unto him, everyone, everyone in the entire world, okay? All are called unto him. He's the one true God. Elder Sophronius quoted as saying, I've been wearing a cassock, meaning I've been a monk, for 60 years. But whenever I meet an Orthodox Christian or any other person, I bow my head low before him. Therefore, wherever we are, whatever station of life we're in, Whatever circumstance we may find ourselves to be in, we can kindle the flame of the divine spark of which Elder Sophroni spoke. And we can beg of God that it might burst into a flame. What else is there to do than to beg of God that that divine spark that he has put within us would burst into a flame and consume us, making us living beacons of God's light? God was no more accessible to them than he is to you and to me. And it's important for us to realize this. While their struggle consisted of serious self-deprivation, vigil, chastity. Our struggle is to raise our children. Lighting their candles, kindling the flame of the love of God in them. Our struggle Is to go to work. That's part of your ascetical struggle. To go to work. To be in the world, but not of it. Constantly struggling. Painstakingly struggling. To understand how to accomplish the will of God in the midst of the daily grind. Asking of yourself, how can I be Christ-like in the midst of it all? How can I be Christ like in the midst of everything that I have to do? It is possible. Our life in Christ is not like a flashlight that we flip on and off. On when it's time for prayer. Off when I'm watching television. On when I'm telling the kids how they should act. Off when I'm gossiping about others at work. On when I drive the car into the parking lot for church on Sunday. Off when the first person cuts me off or drives too slowly while driving home from church. You get the idea. <laughs> Father Seraphim was right. We cannot be half Christian. Do you want to be all Christian? I do. I really do. Do you want to be all flame, burning with real, authentic love? I do. If not, then why not? You have to ask yourself this question. But if you do, then it's worth sacrificing everything for. It's worth dying to yourself in order to live in Christ. It's worth opposing every personal preference in order to be totally consumed with the love of God. I'm not saying you have to get rid of everything you like, but I'm saying it's worth getting rid of everything you like. Honestly, it's better than anything. So with their inspiration, we make changes, sometimes little, sometimes massive, no matter what they are. We must do it as those placing their hands on the plow and never looking back. And as we're contemplating the meaning of the cross in our lives and the calling of Christ for each of us unto himself, we ask for the intercession of these ones who have gone before us. Might they serve as examples and inspirations of dying to self and becoming truly alive in him. They they have beautiful books that they've written. I highly recommend the book called Father Seraphim Rose, His Life and Works. It's huge. It's like a thousand pages, but it's worth your time. It's really good. And Elder Sophroni has a multitude of books. Some of the best are His Life is Mine, We Shall See Him as He Is, and On Prayer. I'll conclude with just two thoughts from the blessed Elder Sophroni. Two thoughts. He says the most important thing in the spiritual life is to strive to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. It changes our lives, above all, inwardly, not just outwardly. We will live in the same house, in the same circumstances, and with the same people, but our life will already be different. But this is possible only under certain conditions, if we find time to pray fervently with tears in our eyes from the morning to ask for God's blessing, that a prayerful attitude may define our entire day. And whoever gives up his cross cannot be worthy of the Lord and become his disciple. The depths of the divine being are revealed to the Christian when he is crucified for our savior. The cross is the foundation of authentic theology. May God grant us to discover the way of the cross. As these two holy ones did. That we may burn with love for him always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages